This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday late afternoon, so hopefully there was enough time for everybody to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Alan Kebab wanted to know if I ever got around to watching Linus's USB-C for Retro Consoles video. No, and there's no disrespect meant in that at all. I just, I'm out of minutes. I just, every time I sit down to try to catch up with YouTube, you know, I want to be able to pay attention for the technical stuff, and I want to be able to catch up on my friends' videos. And if my brain is just mush at the end of the day, I'll end up watching something that's not even retro-related. So if I pass out during it or if I space out thinking of something else I don't feel guilty about not paying attention but I think my theory still stands in that you could do a lot of stuff that's technically perfectly fine for consoles but you just got to think of the bigger picture so are you making a USB-C adapter that's going to be completely soldered and glued together and marked for Sega Genesis or whatever. I'm just making that up. You know, so are you making a solution that whoever finds it in the future is going to go, oh, that's what that's for. Cool. Or is it going to be something where at some point you might plug the wrong thing into the wrong device? And if that's the case, totally cool for a custom setup for your own place. Just keep in mind when you're selling the console or or if somebody else starts to work on it, that that could cause a lot of damage. So I'll try to swing back around to it. Um, hopefully all that stuff came out respectfully. I just, you know, being in the position I'm in, I see the bigger picture for all of this stuff. And I see what happened 10 years ago and I see what continues to happen as this stuff ha- uh, goes on. I even remember stuff happening when these consoles were the mainstream consoles. So I just try to be educational about it without being a douchebag. That makes sense. So hopefully that came out all right. Durf from the Console Mods Wiki wants to know if I've ever done testing on Sony PVM audio output levels. They know you could use the output port as an input, and some people hook up left and right to the input and output jacks, but that sounds like it might be bad for it. Curious if output has any drop in voltage levels too. Would make a good live stream. So no, I haven't tested that, and there's a couple of reasons why. First, I don't know if all PVMs, you know, Tony, Ikigami, JVC, I don't know if all of these would have the same audio pass-through circuit, and I don't even know if the same or different model PVMs would. So that's really more of a question for, maybe that's something Steve from Retrotech and I could work on together, but this would be kind of more of a deep dive, and I prefer the lazy but safe method of just telling people, you know, use a Y cable to combine for audio input, and also, anytime you're routing audio through your PVM, you got to remember that that was a secondary afterthought functionality. The speakers and PVMs are not good. The audio circuits may or may not be total garbage. Maybe, you know, the, if I ran MD Fourier, we would find that it totally destroyed the audio signal. But for me personally, when I use the PVM's audio, it's for testing. It's for a very quick gaming session when I don't have time to set up my main setup or something like that. And audio is really just kind of not something that's on the forefront of my mind. Plus, there's a bunch of cool games that just have garbage audio. I was just playing RC Pro-Am, the Genesis version, which is pretty cool, but there's no music during the game. There's just sound effects and like music after you complete a level. So if I wanted to just have a, a quick gaming session, I might not even turn on the stereo unless it was on, you know, this setup where it's all integrated in. But if I was just like, especially in my old apartment, if I had just plugged in a PVM to play a couple rounds of RC Pro-Am, I guess it would be Championship Pro-Am on the Genesis. 
I just, you know, whatever. I wouldn't even think about the audio. I would just have it loud enough so I could hear the effects and play the game. Whereas, of course, when I'm here in this home setup through these awesome speakers and stereo that I was lucky enough to save up for, then, yeah, I mean, I want to go the distance and I would never run audio through the PVM just in case. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's fine for mono audio. I don't really know. But that was a really long way of saying I've been too lazy to test it because I don't think it applies to me which is terrible. I want to be able to test this stuff for other people as well. So maybe I'll talk with Steve from RetroTech. We'll kind of figure this out together and see what, uh, see what we come up with with these circuits. Next up, Wyrock has a question about those cheap HDMI to composite converters. Would they still add as much lag if the source video you fed them was already 15 kilohertz, 480i or 240p? And would they even recognize 240 correctly? So I don't really know but I think the most important thing to remember is that these converters were designed for TV signals, not games. So the developers who made them probably never had games in mind at all. So never even thought to check into lower latency features because really who cares about three frames of lag if you're putting like a streaming box into an old TV or vice versa, like that uh, SCART to HDMI box, you know, why would anyone care about five to eight frames of lag if it's for an old DVD player or VCR? So it, I, I would not count on it at all, but it's certainly worth a try. However, I would be willing to bet 240p either won't work at all or would be treated as interlaced so you get the same, the same downsides as like the SCART to HDMI box or the pound cables or anything like that. Um, because remember, 240p was never really a TV signal. It was kind of a trick that game consoles and old PCs used to get progressive scan video on a standard TV. So once again, unless those were programmed with gaming in mind, there's no reason for a developer to add that feature. And I just, I wanted to, to answer that with respect to the developers, because it's so easy to be like, oh, these things are garbage. It's not what they were designed for, right? So it's, they're not necessarily garbage. They're just not good for, you know, it's like using a hammer to, to screw down a screw. You might be able to get the, the back pry end to work, but it's not what it was designed for. It's going to be a crap experience. Um, also, they wanted to know what part of those devices add the lag anyways. Is it the conversion to analog or the downscaling of the resolution? So digital to analog conversion, as I've shown in all of those tests, including lag testing retro scalers where I showed my crazy setup and everything, the conversion between digital to analog and analog to digital doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to add lag. And in most cases, it doesn't at all, including devices that weren't even designed for gaming because it's really just converting the signal type without buffering anything. And in fact, adding a buffer to it would add cost to the product, so no one would really add that. However, in almost all of these downscaling cases, you would have a chip that buffers the video and then takes the signal and changes it to the up or down scaling version of whatever you needed. And that is what most likely causes the lag in all of these cases, is that it buffers a few frames and then spits out whatever video you wanted. In that period of a few frames, it's doing the video conversion. Once again, because it doesn't really matter, a couple of frames buffer for a, uh, you know, for a TV show or something like that. And in fact, I don't even think you would be able to notice three or four frames of audio latency from like, you know, people talking. Uh, probably, I mean, I'm sure some of us would, but it's certainly not as bad as like, you know, as a lot of the other stuff that you'd see out there. So good questions. Um, I don't remember if I ever did try those with a 480i signal, but the next time I do one of those streams, I definitely will. But I just wouldn't count on those being high-end downscalers. But, you know, I do want to just politely remind everybody if you were gaming on flat panels right when they came out, you know, 2010-ish when they became really mainstream, you were probably gaming on two to three frames of lag. And while it's always going to be a better experience having a lower latency display, also motion blur is something that, depending on the game, could be a giant part of what affects the overall experience. So if you were playing a modern console scaled down to 480i with Two to, three, two to three frames of lag on a CRT with no motion blur and no added display lag, you might have a better experience than just playing it on a flat panel that had one or two frames of lag 
and motion blur, or yeah, and motion blur. So that's really up to you, your eyes, the type of game, the game console, the size and, and quality of your CRT. It's really one of those like you have to decide for yourself types of things. But I just wanted to put that out there. You know, I'm not saying these are great gaming devices. I'm just saying, depending on what you're used to, it might not be as bad as it could be. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Next up, Oliver Clare is finally biting the bullet and buying an AVR. The good news is that the model that they found can decode Dolby ProLogic 2, which is also backwards compatible with decoding the original Dolby Surround and ProLogic 1. So Matrix Sound on the Matrix Surround Sound on the SNES is on the table. This model that they found also supports Dolby Atmos and can decode almost every one of the Dolby DTS formats that's listed on the wiki page, which Oliver did a lot of work on. So thank you again for that. It's also being sold by a guy online uh, on an Irish marketplace who lives close, so no import charges and less risk of damage in transit. They think it has the equivalent of an analog bypass mode, but they're not sure. It does have RCA inputs through every decoder they want and a Dolby surround up mixer. So uh, I'm just going to pause real quick and say that that analog bypass mode is going to depend on the amp and how the amp works. And for me personally, what that did for my amp, which is useless in this explanation, but hopefully it'll add some context. I loved the sound of that 316B version 2 two-channel NAD amp, the one that I've been highlighting in all of these videos. And I basically contacted NAD Electronics and said, I want a surround sound version of this. How could I get the exact same sound of this amp, but also through surround sound or also outputting surround sound? And they said, well, here, they get this, the T7, the one that I linked to. Um, and when I put it in analog bypass mode for two channel audio, it's exactly like, if not a hair better than the C C316B. So that's my reasoning for it, is I loved the way that other one sounded. And when I described this in the video, a bunch of people had contacted me in the comments or DMs and stuff and said that they have an amp that has a similar feature. What I think the feature is on the NAD amp is bypassing all digital signal processing, because that's you have to enable analog bypass mode and turn DSP off in order to get the true sound that I'm talking about. So I, th I think that's what that is doing is it's not adding any filters. It's not changing the audio at all, which sometimes you'll want to change the audio if you got a really noisy mix, a record with a lot of hissing on it or something like that. But for me personally, I want to start with the raw amplified image, image, sound image, and then go from there. So there's certainly times where I've turned on analog bypass and gone, this is the sound I'm going for with this cassette tape. And there's other times where I've gone, wow, this thing, this record's really beat up. I need to get a newer version of it. Let me flip on DSP and soften some of those pops and clicks. But I want to start with the raw signal. So while I don't think it's a feature that, you know, you must have in your amp, it is something that I do think that if you love music or this old school video games, it's just kind of worth looking into. But it does seem like a lot of these amps have their own version of that. And sometimes it's not even a mode. It's just, you, you know, it's not labeled anything. You just go into the settings and turn off DSP, digital signal processing, which is also sometimes called different things on different amps. So I just kind of wanted to, to tell my side of that story to hopefully put that a perspective for you or anyone else who's patient enough to sit through those audio focused videos that I've been releasing lately. But continuing with Oliver, um, the less than good news is it's an older receiver about eight years old and not cheap. The person was looking for a thousand euros ish. They're inclined to try and make a deal with them as these first generation Yamaha Atmos receivers are really hard to find, but they're pretty nervous about pulling the trigger on it. The unit seems in good condition in the photos, but obviously there would be no warranty. And they were wondering if I could advise if there are any tests or inspections they could reasonably, reasonably do or ask them to do as a condition of meeting the price. So I am not an AVR expert. I'm not even close to that, but I've been doing nerdy stuff like this professionally since I was 19 years old. So 
I could give solid advice from a general electronics point of view. You know, take a look at it. You know, you've been nerding with all of this stuff for a while now. So if you have the ability to just like if it's easy to just take the back off and shine a really bright flashlight in there, what does it look like? Are the capacitors all, you know, like bulging out? Is there juices flowing out? Um, is it caked with dust? So it's probably been running at the hottest possible uh, temperature because there's so much dust everywhere. Or does it kind of look like it's in good condition? And for me personally, I don't want to like, don't take this as advice because I could be giving the dumbest advice on the planet. But I will say that for me, if I was in your position and I found an amp that was a $3,000 amp that you might be able to get for a grand now and you and I opened it up and I looked and it looked like it was in great condition and I powered it on and it sounded good, I would buy it because it checks all the boxes. It has all the features you wanted. It's way cheaper than buying something new. And it seems to be in good condition because I have absolutely bought things where I bent over backwards, checking and measuring. And it was only a year and a half old and it died in a month. And I've bought stuff that was, you know, 30, 40 years old that just worked perfect with no problems at all. So that's my choice though. I don't want to tell you to throw your money away if this thing's going to end up dying on you. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to add that perspective but if you're saving a lot of money on this and it has all the features you want maybe that's a good idea and even if this only lasts four or five years you know whenever you do stuff like this you know you're building for anybody that's not aware oliver's building this amazing retro gaming surround sound movie theater kind of room in the new place and when you get in you might think this is absolutely perfect i love this this is exactly what i need but, you know, as time goes on, we're all nerds. So you might think, well, I love all this new amps features. Maybe I can get an old decoder. And, you know, maybe you're just going to go kind of keep your eyes open and say, I love what I have now, but I definitely see you know, over these next couple of years things that I could improve stuff. So maybe after five years anyway, you're going to want to go with the um, AVR, but power amp setup, or maybe you're you're going to go with an older decoder and a, you know, a 20, 30 amp or, or whatever. So it really is just something that you kind of got to decide for yourself, but I'm always evolving my setups. I think most of us are. And even in times like this, where I, I never in a million years thought I'd be able to have a setup this cool. I sold like a third of the stuff that I owned to be able to afford it, but I truly think it was worth it for me because every time I flip on music or a movie, I just go, this is exactly what I wanted. And of course, I've I've heard better. I used to go to Cedia and CES and all these home theater installation places. I mean, I've had the ability to go into a demo room and listen to a half a million dollar stereo that was two speakers and an amp for half a million bucks. So actually, I, I think that just the two speakers were. But point being, you could always go better. But like, this is mine. I got to just walk over and turn this on. And I love it. But I'm still already seeing things where if this amp lasts 10 years, awesome. But if it doesn't, I could already see where I'm going to start changing things around a little bit as time goes on. So, you know, I would never tell you throw away a grand, you know, buy an amp, have it die in a year and buy another one. But I do think that your, you know, your future forever plan would eventually include another amp anyway. So maybe this one's going to be a good purchase for you. Hopefully my rambling makes sense and I wasn't just half asleep and word vomiting here. So well, let me know what you think, Oliver. Plutonio recently got a really cool Dell PC CRT that has the same guts and tube from a much higher end Sony CPD G520 monitor. And they were thinking about using it with PlayStation 2 and original Xbox. They wanted to know more about the input signals and what this monitor would accept, though. And uh, respect to Plutonio, uh, Plutonio, I'm just going to skip to the end just to make it easier for everybody listening to understand. But Plutonio copy and pasted what it said it accepted on the technical level, which essentially is VGA, RGB HV. So a standard VGA signal um, with you know a minimum of 640 by 480 is what this thing could accept which is exactly what you would expect from any monitor like this. So you're going to need to send it a VGA signal. Now, it also mentioned that it does have sync on green capabilities. However, that's going to be tricky. And I don't think that's how you should approach this because PlayStation 2 still is going to need to boot into 480i unless you have GSM installed. And I don't even know if that would work with sync on green in a forced mode. So what you would really need to do is get 
either a scaler or a converter. And unfortunately, because you said PS2, here's where things are going to get a little bit tricky. So with original Xbox, you could just have it always set to output 480p. There are some games that are not 480p compatible, but there's not that many of them. And just get either an Xbox HD box, a converter, whatever else, and that's it. You're good to go. You can even just set it to 4x3 and you don't have to worry about any of that. However, when you're talking PlayStation 2, that means you're definitely going to need some 480i modes in there. And uh, GameCube, as long as you're booting into Swiss, you don't really need to worry about that because that would definitely have a way to force 480p in basically all scenarios. But if you're not booting with Swiss, if you're starting out booting just a standard disc and you don't have the ability to boot homebrew, same thing. You're going to have to boot into 480i to get the game started and switched over. And not all GameCube games support 480p without Swiss forcing them. So what you really are going to want to look into is a scaler or a converter. And if you have the budget, here's a great use for the RetroTank 5X because you could also use this thing for streaming. You could split the output and all that stuff. But even if you were just using it for this monitor, you set the output to 480p, you set deinterlacing to motion adaptive, and now everything works on it. All modes of the PS2, those very few Xbox games that are 480i only, everything that you could send from a GameCube, all of it would work. And all you would need at the end is an HDMI to VGA converter. I have, I'll leave the link to my Amazon page that I, I have the ones that I use. They're super cheap and they all seem to work great. Um, the Rovideo, Ro I think, is the one that people have been saying has been working best for them. Starts with an R, but all of the ones I've tested on there work fine for me. So I think that's the scenario you're going to want to be in. Now, unfortunately, if you wanted something cheaper, now you're going to have to make a decision. Do you get like an open source scan converter or maybe try to find a used one that would be able to do the same things? Same, you know, you have to get the HDMI to VGA converter and that would Bob deinterlace 480i. But if you're forcing the games into 480p mode, you're only seeing the shaky Bob deinterlacing on, you know, menus, title screens, boot menus and stuff like that. So that could be a completely good way to go about doing this. And, um, also, you could try to find a RetroTINK 2XM, the multi-format. That's also going to Bob deinterlace, but that would also pass through 480p. So that's another good option, but that's kind of going to be something that you have to decide for yourself. Now, you mentioned you don't have component cables for your consoles. You've always just used RGB SCART. So that's, uh, that's something to keep note of. What you do want to remember is depending on your SCART cable, uh, the original Xbox would only output 480i if you set it to that. Now, I'm I'm forgetting off the top of my head if I, I think when you plug in an official Xbox or, you know, something built to spec RGB SCART cable, you only get 480i, period. And I think that there are cable makers out there that essentially make component video cables, but with a SCART head on it for things like the open source scan converter, uh, you know, and, and anything like that that could accept it. But I think what's probably going to be the best thing for you is picking up uh, either component video cables at the very least for the Xbox and uh, using and then an OSSC or component video cables for all of these things and getting a RetroTINK 5X. So if you need me to elaborate more, please let me know. I'd be happy to walk you through whatever you got, uh, whatever you need to do. But this is an awesome setup. I do think it's really going to be worth your time to get it right. And you don't have to spend a lot of money on it. But if you end up picking up a Tink 5X, you're going to have all ground covered. And you could even use an HDMI splitter. So even though you're only outputting 480p, one of the outputs goes to your capture card that you could just resize properly in OBS. The other one goes to your HDMI to VGA converter. And now you have the best of all worlds here. So that's definitely something to think about. But let me know if you need any more suggestions on kind of where to go from here. Elwood15 wants to know what's my recommended way to clean carbon conductors and pads from old controllers. And is it possible to salvage a controller where said conductors have been damaged on the PCB itself? So I have that controller cleaning page that is one of the first I did for RetroRGB, and I've been using that for over 10 years now, and I like it. Basically, it means that 
all I do is I take out every bit of electronics and separate that. I wash all of the other stuff with dish detergent and sometimes goo gone if they're really nasty. Goo gone first, then dish detergent to remove the goo gone. And then I take the carbon conductors and I clean those with isopropyl and make sure everything's dried thoroughly. I use uh, compressed air. It's like a reverse vacuum compressed air thingy. I have that listed in the tools page as well. Dry out everything. And then I use isopropyl and uh, any kind of like cotton pad, Q-tip, whatever, to clean the contacts off on the controller itself. And then I go from there. Whenever the rubber pads and the contacts on those are worn through, I'll try to get repair kits. Some of them are better than others. So uh, there's been more than once that I bought a new controller repair kit, put the pads in, started using it, and then ended up putting the older worn ones back in because they were less shitty than the new one that I got. So it's kind of hit or miss where you could find those and they're not consistent too. You can get a good seller and you could buy 20 of them and 19 out of 20 are great. And one, you know, the, the right part of the D-pad doesn't stick in the correct, you know, it doesn't feel right type of thing. Uh, so that's kind of where I would go from there. I would love to hear anybody else kind of chime in on that. Uh, is there any other suggestions, anything people do that's safe to try? As far as when the conductors have been damaged on the PCB itself, the only time I've seen stuff like that is physical damage or soda was spilled in and the whole thing kind of corroded out. So you could try to use something like um, a fiberglass pen or something corrosive there to try to get those back together. But now you're really talking about when I, you're talking about expert level repair, but when I say that, I don't mean physically doing it. Physically doing it is easy for beginners. Knowing when that's the right step is really kind of expert repair. So it's my personal opinion that if you have a controller, that it's not something super rare worth a million bucks, but like you have your SNES controller and you don't, you know, you tried everything to clean it and one of the buttons isn't quite working right give it a try with any of those harsher methods and if it starts working cool and if not you were probably going to have to throw that out anyway and you don't have to throw it out either because nowadays with those controller replacement kits you could sell a broken very clean controller on ebay and somebody might buy it for the wire somebody might buy it for the uh, just to swap the guts with like the 8-bit dough kits or something like that so you know it's just one of those things where be very careful don't ruin good equipment but basically it's it's really just about properly cleaning and then seeing where you go from there. Let me know if I explained that right. Hopefully I kind of put it into perspective. Robert has a bunch of questions. Respectfully, I'm just gonna kind of blow through them so I can make sure to answer all of them. Uh, number one, can I recommend a good shielded component video cable for the original Xbox with 5.1 surround sound support? I believe that some of the monster cables have a component video out, but they also have the optical audio jack. Those are kind of hit or miss because what condition are they in? Did somebody take good care of them, et cetera, et cetera. If you want a good new solution, this is going to sound kind of convoluted, but I've thoroughly tested this and it seems to work great. Buy HD Retrovision Wii cables and get from consoles for you the adapter that allows you to convert original Xbox to Wii's output. And that's just a pass-through. It's a connector. It's not converting the signal. But that also, there is one version of that that has a digital audio output as well. So that would definitely work. The other thing you could try to do is try to get higher quality HDMI adapters. You could do that new one from the Behar brothers. They claimed that the one that I got was faulty, and that's why the output was dim. But they didn't send another one to test, so that one's kind of at your own risk. But that would absolutely do it because you could get digital audio from the Spitif jack, you can get component video, and if you even wanted, you could have HDMI output at the same time. So depending on your total solution, either one of those would be my recommended go-to. If you know you're only going to be using component video, so you're only using CRTs or you're routing everything through the Tink 5X, then the first solution's probably going to be better. Next, they see a weird purple stripe on their screen when they try to watch Roku on the Tink 5X with an HDMI to component adapter. They've also used an HDMI to composite adapter and they see a white stripe instead. The stripes are sometimes stationary and other times they move from the bottom of the screen to the top and then repeat. They have 15 consoles connected to their Tink 5X through an Extron crosspoint and component cables. They only experience this problem with the Roku. They've also removed the Extron from the chain, but the problem persists. Do I have any fixes or could I recommend a good HDMI to component adapter that's known to work well? 
Um, so I, I have seen that before and I have never traced the problem down. And I think it's one of those things where a few different things could cause issues like that. It is often power supply related. So you could try swapping the power supply out. If your converter is USB power based, use a good quality high amperage USB power brick and then just plug a good quality USB cable into it. But if not, you might wanna just buy another converter. The ones that I link to on my Amazon page are ones I've tested personally. There's no guarantee that they're gonna consistently stay good quality. I'm sure everybody would get a bum one now and then, but it's, you know, if you buy them through Amazon, you could return them. So probably worth your time. Next, do I have any recommended settings for streaming old media on the Tink 5X? Whatever your eyes prefer. I know that's a cop-out bullshit answer, but that's the honest truth. I've seen some where I just turn on motion adaptive deinterlacing and it looks great. I've seen some where adding CRT filters look amazing. And I've seen some where it looks a little too sharp and it's just, it kind of makes the image weird. And it's strange because if you're talking about old TV shows, you know, you'd think it would be consistent, but it really isn't. And it could be that some stuff was shot on film, stuff, some stuff wasn't. So I'm not really sure, but whatever your eyes think is best is the right answer. Sorry for the cop out, but it is true. Next, Japanese Sega Saturn and Terra Onion mode question. They have to watch the Saturn boot animation twice, once when they beat up, uh, boot up the console and once again when they boot the game. Is there a way they could change the second animation so it would play the US version instead of the Japanese version? They like seeing both. It's a good question. I got no clue though. I've never tried that and I think it's neat. I think it's something I'd like to know the answer to just for the hell of it. But you might want to try Terra Onion's Discord and see if anybody in there has been able to do that. Uh, lastly, as mentioned above, um, they have 15 consoles connected to their crosspoint and then to the Tink 5X via component. They want to downscale from component to composite through the second output on their Xtron and then to the SCART to component video adapter on the Tink 5X. They only want to do this for games that are ruined by ugly dithering like Silent Hill. They know they could just swap around cables, however, that would be difficult with their current setup. Can I recommend a zero lag component to composite adapter or a different method to accomplish this goal? You're not going to like my answer, but it, you component to composite doesn't really exist. You would need to convert it from component to RGB and then composite, or you could do conversions on many different parts of things. But if you're talking about Silent Hill on the PlayStation, why not just get some kind of breakout adapter that allows you to break out composite video. And there is an adapter, um, you know, I'll leave a, a note for myself here to, to leave something on screen to show you if you're watching this on video, but there is an adapter you could find that's an official Sony breakout box that plugs into the mini DIN or the, um, the multi-out AV in the back. And it's a box that, like a rectangular box. And on the other end, is another Sony multi-out. So if you're using something like the HD Retrovision cables for PS1 or PS2, you could totally use something like that to break out component video through that and then break out composite video through the RCA jack on that box. Or of course, if you're using an older uh, revision PlayStation 1, that might have a separate composite jack on the back. If you're using a PS1, that would just simply mean that you run that directly to your CRT or to your Tink's composite input or something like that and, and just go from there. And um, if you're using a PlayStation 2, you would need to make sure to not set it to uh, 480p if you were doing that. I don't think any, you could do that in the case of Silent Hill, but I'm just saying in general, if you were looking to use the composite blending, that's really was a, probably in the minds of a lot of developers who were making these games, making the artwork for it. That's kind of how I would go about doing it. So you could keep your, your setup completely as is. And then for those games, you could just get composite video out without unplugging and replugging everything. You're just having a separate video line. And in fact, if you have an extra input on your cross point, you could take that composite video out and run it to, you know, the red input of your cross point. So RGB, HV, put it in the R and then have another one of those outputs routed to whatever you want your composite to go to. So you would just really need to change the outputs on your cross point. And if it's PS1, it only outputs 15 kilohertz anyway. So you don't even have to change anything on there. The problem with this is that's only a device that exists for the PlayStation 1. I have been begging people to make these breakout adapters for all consoles 
and nobody thinks that they'd sell. So this is an exact scenario in which that would be the perfect thing to buy. But it, uh, no one's just no one's making them. So hopefully somebody will listen and, and make a small run just to see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you, me, and three other people will buy them and that's it. They'll sit on a shelf and I have wasted somebody's time. I don't think so, though. I think there's a lot of people who want to access all of the outputs and don't want to buy a bunch of cables and constantly unplug and replug. So hopefully that answers all your questions. Let me know if I missed anything. Green Devil just purchased a triple bypass board with the intention of installing it on their Model 2 Genesis, but then they decided the Model 2 is their childhood Genesis. They want to keep that 100% original, and let's just add this into a VA2 motherboard Model 1. I, I by the way, am 100% on board with stuff like that. If I had any of my childhood systems, I would want to either make them a complete, like, you know, or totally original as is, or in the case of like an original Game Boy, maybe just do a screen mod that doesn't require cutting or anything like that. So I, I totally am on the same page of your mindset with this. Um, so basically they want to end up taking this and installing it into their Model 1 Genesis that they picked up for use with HD retrovision cables. Um, their modding skills are intermediate. For reference, they've, they've installed an N64 digital, fixed Virtual Boy ribbon cables, and completed the third-party necessity build with RGB. So that means this is definitely something you could handle, no doubt. Um, you know, be patient, obviously, don't blow through it, but if you've successfully done the other ones, you're fine. So the questions that they have, do they need any additional components for going into a Model 1? No. Um, you know, the only extra component you would need is that nine pin mini din if you're going to do the upside down installation like Jose and I love to do and replace the RF jack with it. So you basically make it essentially a Model 2's din output. But it sounds like you already have that. And if you're just looking to get stereo audio and RGB connected to it, that's all that you would need. Next, how difficult is it to preserve the headphone jack? Um, this is one of those things where it's not hard, but you have to follow the documentation that's out there. And I, I don't know where that is. Um, you know, I spent so much time and so much money on the triple bypass project that when it came time to do the documentation, I was out of time. I had to go back and catch up with the month's worth of stuff that I needed to do while I was dicking around with this instead. So I never did it. I was hoping that people would kind of jump on the wiki and start adding that, especially people like Leon, who's done a million of these, or, or maybe people that's willing to help and pull pictures from Jose's Twitter account. Uh, I'm, and I mean that in a nice way. I'm sure he would love to donate the pictures from the work that he's done to help other people out. Uh, so you would have to really just find what Jose has done and hopefully somebody's put it on the wiki and just copy his method. And there were talks of maybe spinning off a different version of that board specifically for the Model 1 to make the headphone jack thing easier, but you could totally just do it yourself. Um, next, RF shielding isn't necessary, right? No, but hold on to it. So when you say RF shielding, you don't mean the heat sink, obviously, connected to the two 7805s. You mean just that metal thing on the top. You want to remove that so that you could use the clear retro game restore shell. So my strong opinion on this is take it off, but just hold on to it just in case. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe someday there's going to be a new wireless frequency that screws with older things or vice versa. So just throw it in a box somewhere and keep it. But the only other thing to note is since you're now removing the thickness of that. So imagine the thickness of the motherboard and the thin piece of metal on top and thin piece of metal on the bottom, removing those now there's more going to be more of a play so don't crank down the screws on the retro game restore case because you could warp the motherboard you could definitely get it solid but you know or maybe you could add washers if you're paranoid about that um but it's just like a basic tip it's not anything it's not a, a huge worry or anything and lastly anything else they should know most guides are focused on model two or three installations so is there anything else they need to worry about um and they also get a cap replacement kit from console five so uh, as for the cap replacement, since you're no longer using the audio circuit that's on the Genesis One, you don't need to have all of the caps on there. If you wanted to do it for completion purposes or if you should ever want to change it to a different mod if something else comes out in the future, then sure, just do it to do it. Or maybe you want to look into, do those capacitors affect the headphone jack output as well? So I just wanted to mention that. I mean, doing a cap replacement on a Genesis isn't that uh, hard or time consuming, so you might want to just do it to do it. The only other stuff is just kind of checking around and seeing 
any of the other stuff that's necessary. You probably are going to need to do the RGB pin lift. This is going to disable composite video, but it doesn't matter because it still sends sync to the DIN for your HD retrovision cables. And if you really wanted composite, you have your childhood Genesis 2 that you could use. Um, you can do the pin lift and add the capacitor if you get RAM noise, which on a VA2, I think you will. Um, and there also might be one other small mod to do that after you're done, load up the 240p test suite and see if the color steps go all the way up or if you're missing one in the middle. And if that's the case, you'd want to find the fix that Tian Fong figured out a while back. Once again, I, I really hope some of these end up on the wiki. Or I hope all of this ends up on the wiki to make it easier for you. But what I would basically do is do the installation and go from there. If you do it and whatever you did comes out perfect, great. Don't question it, just use it and love it. If you do it and you have RAM noise, you know, maybe you do go back and add the cap. Or I mean, I'd probably add that anyway, but it's up to you. Uh, if the uh, color looks fine, you're done. Don't worry about it. But if you're missing one, then go back. So basically just, you know, and I would also personally do whatever you would like, but I would also personally get it done before doing the headphone jack just to make every make sure everything's working and then kind of go back and, and do all of those individually one at a time just to make sure that, you know, just you're doing one step at a time. These are old consoles. There's lots of stuff that can go wrong. But I think that's basically it. So, um, you know, hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction. But obviously I'm a massive fan of the triple bypass. And uh, I just think it's something that's for people that want the best quality RGB out of original Genesis consoles. I think it's amazing. I also think that there's plenty of people out there that would rather just recap their childhood console than use a mister for the high quality video. And that's a totally, totally good solution too. So there's lots of good answers these days. And I'm glad we have all these choices. 60 frame per second said, I've talked about dedicating a lot of time to satisfy the algorithms that define my visibility and reach, but they can't remember me ever specifically asking for existing supporters to reevaluate their contribution level. Yeah, no way I'll ever do that. And by the way, thank you so much. That's a very nice question to ask. That is a very supportive thing to talk about. Uh, and I, I mean no disrespect in my response, but I would never ask that. In fact, the only thing that I would ever feel comfortable asking existing supporters to do is tell their friends. And I could only say that because if you're still supporting, then you've seen the work that I've been involved in and you've seen the differences that we've been able to make in the gaming community. So if you have other friends that are benefiting from that, maybe mention it to them because I've heard, you know, it, my, for a long time now, I've been walking through game stores and I'll overhear people talking about mods and I'll kind of walk by and they'll look right at me and not know that I was the person that either helped bring that mod to the public or, or was one of the people that discovered it or was the only one to document it. And I used to think it was neat, like, ah, oh, cool, I get to like, I get to make a difference in the gaming scene. And, you know, that's that's nice. But unfortunately, the other side of that means a lot of people don't support because they have no idea that I was one of the ones behind it. So, you know, telling your friends is just about the only thing I would ever be comfortable to asking existing supporters to do. And in fact, um, because of a whole bunch of logistic things, I no longer have a $1 tier. The lowest tier is $5. But every single person that had joined under a dollar is grandfathered in forever, period, end of story. There will never, ever come a time where I say, you know, the weekly Q&A is for five dollars only unless I get like a million subs and then that would have had to have happened at some point because I can't do nine hour long Q&A's every week but I mean like if things are about the same as they are now and these are hour-ish long like th that will never change I'll never force anybody to pay more period end of story and you know I it just raising it for new subs is just something you kind of have to do because with inflation and everything else it just kind of is the way it is but to be honest the monthly support services are something that I'm I'm still pretty uncomfortable talking about because it's, you know, other than my little spiel that I put at the end of the fancier videos or my thank you after every one of these weekly videos that I do, it's kind of hard to talk about this because I am just shit at self-promotion. I'm absolute garbage. And I feel like whenever I do end up doing it, like right now, I feel like I'm like, talking myself up and acting arrogant. And I just, I feel like an asshole. So it's really uncomfortable for me to talk about. And I, I just, that is something that I would need help with because it's really hard to get the word out of the stuff that I do. And it's also hard to be able to do this and pay my bills. I'm right under the wire every month. And I'm not saying that 
to put guilt on anybody. I'm just annoyingly transparent. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. A lot of people want that YouTube, YouTube personality that puts on a show and that is not who I am. I am just the fat guy with a webcam that talks too much every week. That is who I will always be. And unfortunately that's, you know, I have no filter with that. I'm just going to be annoyingly honest. And, you know, I guess I could look into more sponsorships, but that's such a fine line because like there's two very important scenarios that I would run into if sponsorships came into the ring. First and foremost, what if uh, the big RetroNAS company wanted to sponsor me? RetroNAS is an open source free project, but I'm making a silly example just to kind of paint the picture. But what if big RetroNAS, you know, is paying me to, you know, my, my monthly bills worth of income to promote them? And a new thing comes out that's cheaper. RetroNAS is free once again, just an example. But a new thing that comes out is cheaper and better. And it, it's just the, something that people should be using. What I would like to say is, hey, remember that thing that I've been telling everybody to use? That's still awesome and I still like it, but this new thing's better. So if you haven't invested that yet, maybe do this one instead. There's no way I'd be allowed to do that. I'd, I'd lose the sponsor. So what am I gonna do, lie to you? Not talk about it at all? So that's a big one. And the other one is stuff like, like I love the Candy Cap Coin Button Project. I realize that there's like seven people on the planet that care about that. And I do not give a shit. I thought I saw a problem that needed solving that I don't know anybody else that solved it. I did some web searching and I'm sure somebody else solved that problem, but I couldn't find it. So I contacted Tian Fong. He was able to make the board. And that's, that was released open source free for everybody to use. And then Joe, the Midgate Crisis made that really awesome 3D print that actually looks like a coin slot. And that's amazing. But if I had a sponsor, they would be like, you are crazy wasting your time and money on that. There's like seven people in the world that need that. Why did you spend all of this time talking about it? Why did you waste, you know, Joe and Tian's time doing this stuff? Why don't you just pick a Nintendo topic to talk about that you're going to bring in a new audience and not just satisfy the very few people with at-home candy cabs? It's because I love shit like that. That makes me so happy whenever myself and the much smarter friends that I have can solve problems for people. You know, that's something that you all allow me to do. And heck, maybe saying this out loud, I'm going to lose subs. Maybe people are going to be like, I'm not giving you five bucks a month so you can dick around with a coin slot button thing. Like, But I got to be annoyingly honest about this. And I don't know any other way to be able to accomplish all of this unbiased. And you know, people, a lot of people like to harp on that. Unbiased from a sponsorship point of view. If a developer makes five amazing products, I'm going to go into the sixth review thinking it's probably going to be as awesome as the rest. And if a developer makes five shit products, I'm going to assume the sixth one's probably terrible as well. There's always going to be personal bias there, but there's zero sponsorship bias. So when I say, hey, I love this thing, and yeah, there's an affiliate code, but I love it, I mean that. And when I say, hey, I absolutely love that NAD amp, and I bought it from safeandsound.com and asked them for an affiliate code, and they said they don't have one. And I still put the link down because I love the amp, and I thought they treated me really freaking well, and I get nothing for that. And I have the ability to do that because of the monthly support. So I already feel gross talking about this. Uh, I am like uncomfortable you know, revealing all of that, I feel like just talking honestly about it is going to piss more people off. Uh, but I do very much respect the uh, the question, 60 frames per second. I do appreciate the love that you all amazing people give. And I just, I you know, I got to figure out ways to grow these monthly services so I could keep getting this cool stuff out. And I just really hope that more people see this stuff. And, you know, yeah, I feel really gross talking about this. I'm just going to stop now before I hate myself even more. <laughs> Seacon wants to know how I would rank the video output quality, both analog and digital, for GameCube, Wii, and Wii U. Is there, and also, is there any way through modding to get 240p analog output from a Wii U? So first, the easy one, I'm pretty sure the answer is no about 240p, unless things have changed in the past two or three years. I kind of stopped paying attention to the Wii U as much just because I got overwhelmed with other stuff. I, I have one sitting over there that I want to swing back around and finish working on. I, I halfway modded it and then I just never finished it, just ran out of time. So if anybody knows an update to that, that would be awesome. And the video output quality that's a much larger discussion because are you using unmodded consoles with original discs? Do you have the ability to load Swiss in four different modes? 
what cables are you using? The official GameCube component cables and either the official or HD Retrovision Wii, Wii U cables. There's a lot of differences there, but also um, there's been a lot of updates over the years and a lot of tricks people have found to improve the video quality and there are mods that, that can fix it. So what I would love to do someday is do like a live stream with Extrem. So I know prefers text, so maybe I could be the word vomiting talking head and uh, Extrems could come through the chat and we could have the discussion that way and I could test some consoles or do some, some stuff live. I would love to do that and I would love to have on the wiki and, and even on retro RGB a very... On Retro RGB, I'd love a basic overview of this. Hey, if you're using unmodded consoles, then this is the best. If you load Swiss, then XYZ, whatever else, and then put the detailed answers up on consolemods.org. Uh, so I have to I have to unfortunately call out my friend Extrems and ask him to continue or consider doing something like that with me so we could get very clear info out. Definitely check the wikis that he contributes to because he just puts a wealth of information out there. Really good stuff. So Seacon, I'm sorry, I have a cop-out answer for you. My answer is I'd like to get I'd like to get a better answer and document it. Um, and I just don't remember anything about the 240p output. I'm not sure if that's even possible. So that's another one that I would like to default to the experts. So what do you all think about that? Um, you know, if you're still with me after my whole word vomit support section and, uh, and you're still listening, then maybe take the time to jump into the comments or on social media and just let me know. Do you want me to do a live stream like that? Are there other members of the community you would like to ha me to have join as well? I would love to have Emu Kidded jump on as well. Um, I'd love to have Shank jump on just because Shank's freaking awesome and he, he knows a lot more about the hardware side of things than I do for, for Wii stuff. So let me know what you think, but that's certainly something I would very much enjoy doing. Well, that's it for this time. If you have any questions at all, please ask them wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way all these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I really just love scrolling through in real time and answering them here like we're hanging out at a bar or a coffee shop or something and having a chat. So any support service at all, feel free. The, the past few weeks, there's mostly just been questions on Patreon, which is cool. I just I wanted to make sure everybody knows if you're a supporter in any way, feel free to jump in and be part of these fun questions. Uh, and if you're not a supporter and you still want to ask a, uh, ask a question, try hitting me up on social media. But I'm really at limited time, so I try so hard to get back to everybody, but I just I can't. You know, I could uh, I could do this 24/7 and still not to get every, get to everybody's questions, which is kind of why I love these Q and A chats so much. Really gives me a dedicated and fun time every week to hang out with all of you. So, anyway, thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.